0: Uh, I suppose we should get started, huh? Well, we should get finished, is what we should get.
1: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys podcast, where the name is Aspirational, I am Glenn, and today we are on Dune Watch, where we are preparing for the much-delayed release of the latest Dune movie by reviewing the previous efforts at adapting the novel. First up is the 1984 Dune movie, and of course, I can't begin this journey alone. With me, as always, is my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, have you found the beginning
0: to be a very delicate time? Lately, I've been finding just about everything to be a very delicate time. That is a 2021 mood. I mean, I talked a little bit about that on our latest Patreon show, but yeah, I'm in a very delicate space right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you and me both. So we're talking about the 1984 Dune, the first filmed adaptation of the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert, which is one of the canonical sci-fi novels. And it's also come down as one of those big, sprawling, epic, huge stories. And so it presents a lot of problems and a lot of difficulties trying to adapt it for the screen. And so there are a few different efforts that we're going to be talking about in the next few shows. What do you think are really the main difficulties, the main challenges, trying to adapt this novel?
2: Well, on the one
0: hand, I think it kind of depends when you're talking, because if you were going to adapt this novel in the past, you had to spend a ton of money on special effects, which I'm assuming they did for the 84 movie, but it certainly doesn't look like it. Nowadays, a lot of that stuff is a lot more common, a lot of that stuff, I don't know if it's necessarily cheaper, but it's certainly done a lot more often, it's not such a unique thing that other movies aren't doing. Like, how many movies that came out in 1984 had the level of special effects you would need to adapt Dune, whereas nowadays, every Marvel movie has more effects than you'd need to adapt Dune. On the other hand, I don't necessarily think there are any real difficulties in adapting the novel Dune that aren't already existent in adapting a lot of other novels. That's what really jumped out at me watching the movie this time, is... I mean, we'll get to reviewing the movie itself, but a lot of the deficiencies in the adaptation I think are common to adaptations of a lot of other novels.
1: That's true. A lot of the difficulties are shared with some other adaptations, and the comparison that kept coming to mind for me was The Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings and Dune were both considered by many people for a long time basically unadaptable, at least in a way that would feel whole in a way that would make sense to the people who had read the book as well as the people who hadn't. And a lot of those difficulties, I think, come from the same places, where Dune has a complex, multi-layered, incredibly detailed background mythos that is referenced in small ways and large ways throughout the novel with the terminology that people use, the backgrounds that different characters and different groups within the society in the novel possess, and the different contexts that everyone is operating in, different subcultures, things like that. And one of the hardest, most difficult things... And one of the most important things, I think, about adapting Dune is balancing the amount of that background and the amount of that context that you put in expositionary dialogue or monologue, as the case may be, the amount that you imply, and the amount that you leave out, because you don't necessarily need it to tell the emotional story and the character story that you're telling in your film, So balancing the amount of exposition you need and the amount of information that you need to pack in is very, very difficult and very, very important.
0: See, that's where I think this movie, well, one of the places I think this movie stumbled, and it's the same place a lot of other adaptations stumble, is trying to include details from the book just for the sake of including the detail from the book. Yes, Like, they try to cram in as many details from the book as they can, but they don't take the time to explain why those details are important. Like, either take the time to explain why this point is important, or just cut the point out because it's not strictly necessary for the story you're telling in the film. But too many adaptations don't do either of those extremes, they sort of go down the middle where they include the detail from the book, but they don't take time to explain it. So if you've read the book, you go, oh, there's that detail. And if you didn't read the book, you go, why are we spending time on this?
1: Right. Those, I think, are examples of times where that balance is out of balance. Where somewhere along the way, in the process of creating the screenplay, everything kind of went off the rails, or someone decided all of these things from the book have to be jammed in.
0: And the way they jam it in is with really, really, really long exposition dumps. And not just, like, one or two really long exposition dumps. Like, the whole movie starts with a a two-and-a-half-minute exposition dump, and then right after the opening credits, there's another exposition dump. And then throughout the movie, it's just exposition dump after exposition dump after exposition dump. Like, at what point the characters even ask for the exposition dump? When they introduce the still suits, and Duke Leto says, Thanks for giving us these still suits, can you please stop the movie and explain to us how they work? Can
1: you make this exposition interesting? I am Max von Sidau, I will die trying. <laughs> <laughs> Let's clarify briefly. We're talking about the theatrical version of the film. When you say there are too many exposition dumps, we're talking about the shortest version of the film that there is. The history of the different edits and all the different versions of this film is long and extensive, much like the longer cuts of the film. There is also the Alan Smithy cut, so named because David Lynch insisted that his name be taken off of it.
0: Yeah, that's worth noting. We decided to watch the version that was officially released and the version that the director chose and said, this is the version I support, this is the movie I made, this is my movie. So we're going along with David Lynch and watching the version of the movie he wants.
1: So when we talk about all this, keep in mind we're talking about the shortest, most dramatically taught version of the film. I mean, we've seen the Alan Smithy cut... I don't know how much you remember, but I know I watched it with you, and it was a lot. You watched it with me? Yes.
0: I thought the only time I saw that cut, I was watching it with two friends of mine in high school. I don't remember ever watching it with you. No, we watched it sometime in
1: the late 2000s. Oh, seven, eight, nine. I don't remember that. Oh, yes. Of course, not having seen it since sometime circa the late 2000s, I can't speak authoritatively on every aspect of it, but yes. So, that being said... Getting back to some of the pacing issues and some of the exposition issues and these issues that come up when adapting this type of book, I keep thinking about the Lord of the Rings movies again, and I keep thinking about the prologue in Fellowship, which, within a span of a few minutes, covers thousands of years of history, tells you what
0: it is that you need to know. And you know what else that prologue does? It tells a dramatic story. Yes, it's exciting! It's not one actress staring at the camera on a starfield. And then she fades out to the starfield and then fades right back in and continues talking uninterrupted the entire time. And then she fades out again and fades right back in again! She just fades out a couple of times for no particular reason. <laughs> And also, at the end of the movie, they don't even include the part where she marries Paul to legitimize his claim to the emperorship, so, like, there's no point to that character even existing! And yet she's the one that gives all this two and a half minutes of exposition right off the top!
1: Well, I mean, like you said, there are three consecutive info dumps right at the beginning of the film. There's the Princess Irulan's monologue before the credits, And then there's the scene with the Emperor and the Guild Navigator where the Emperor stands in the middle of the frame and tells us what's going to happen for the next hour and a half of the film. And then there's a scene with Paul looking at an instructional tablet of some sort that's giving him the most generic exposition about this is the planet Arrakis. This is the planet Gidi Prime. This is the planet Caladan, because it's basic information that the audience needs, but there's no effort to dramatize it.
0: None at all. And if they're so pressed for time to cram in all of this information from the book, why do they waste so much of it on these scenes with the Emperor and these, like, ridiculous puppets in giant tanks? None of which is from the book. Uh, it's... (laughs) I
1: was going to say it's very strange. There's much that's strange here.
0: Well, every bit of design in this movie is a fever dream. I said the most important thing about adapting
1: Dune is balancing the exposition with drama, right? The second most important thing that I think, in my opinion, you have to do if you're adapting Dune is to make it weird as hell. And in that, this movie succeeds. It is weird
2: as hell.
0: Why does it have to be weird? That's the kind of thing where the first one out of the gate sort of sets a precedent. The only reason people think a Dune adaptation has to be weird as fuck is because this movie was weird as fuck, and everyone compares all their later work to this movie. But this movie is crap! So there's no reason anyone should try to emulate it. That's another thing that jumped out at me, really, watching this movie critically this time. This movie is terrible. The pacing is terrible. Most of the acting is terrible. The story is near unintelligible. Huge swaths of it don't make any sense. Huge swaths of it only make sense because I know the story from the book. The writing is terrible because all the exposition dumps, all of the fucking voiceover monologues... There are just so many terrible choices that go into putting together this movie. It's a terrible movie, in addition to being a terrible adaptation.
1: (laughs) Well, I was going to talk about a few things that are working in it and and a few things that aren't working in it, but- Not a
0: goddamn thing is working in this movie! Okay, go ahead. What worked for you in the movie? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Honestly, many aspects of the production design. I like that it's weird as hell. I think the value of making it weird as hell is that there are so many aspects of the construction of the universe that are grounded in feudal house structures and internecine feudal politics that is imported into this sci-fi context and making the design bonkers is one of the things that marks that departure, I think, from a story fundamentally warring houses, fighting over resources, etc., etc., etc. This could be a medieval feudal story, but it's in this sci-fi setting. So the outlandish production design, I think, creates that sense of strangeness that you need for this. I think it needs to feel strange, fundamentally.
0: You know what the design made me think of? And really, in particular, the ornithopter scene where they rescue the spice mining crew. All those shots of the interior of the ornithopter. Just the entire look of the inside of that ornithopter and all the controls and everything really made me think that this design was strongly influenced by the Flash Gordon movie. Yeah, quite possibly. And it kind of worked in the Flash Gordon movie because that was a farce because that movie was just ridiculous over-the-top camp nothing in that movie was to be taken seriously it wasn't trying to tell a serious dramatic story and so it just all sort of worked as part of the ridiculousness i've never seen dune as like part of the ridiculousness it's not trying to tell a ridiculous farcical camp story I
1: think any affection that people have for it still is in the context of camp, but certainly at the time, that's not what it was going for.
0: I can understand appreciating aspects of this movie from the perspective of, Jesus Christ, that is just fucking ridiculous. But if we're judging it as, like, a movie, if we're judging it as a movie trying to tell a story... And even worse, if we're judging it as a movie trying to tell the story from the novel Dune by Frank Herbert, that's not how you go about it.
2: Well, no.
1: I mean, (laughs) in terms of reviewing the film and determining at the end of the day, is it a good film? No. No, it's not.
0: Is it a story that's told? Well, no. Another problem with the adaptation is that in order to adapt the story of Dune, you have to understand the story of Dune. (laughs) Ideally. The entire point of the story of Dune is that prophecies and religious fervor and idolization are bullshit. They are bullshit constructed by powerful entities to protect themselves. That is the entire point. And yet this movie presents the whole thing as if the prophecy is legitimate, as if Paul really is the chosen one. At the end, he makes it rain on the desert planet just because. Just by willing it to be. That is the complete opposite of the message of the story of the novel Dune. The prophecy in the novel is a story seeded on primitive planets by the sisterhood in order to protect themselves if they ever get stranded there to try to set them up as false religious figures. And then Paul takes advantage of it and sets himself up as a false religious figure. The whole point of the story is that religious prophecy is bullshit, and hero worship is bullshit. That, that's the point! Even the people who are taking advantage of the situation acknowledge it's all bullshit. But the movie presents it straight, as if there really is a prophecy, and Paul really does become a god.
1: And it's awesome.
0: That's where we disagree,
1: apparently. No, 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 I'm, I'm, no. What I'm saying is it's presented as he is the chosen one, the prophecy is about him, he is like as unto a god now, and it's awesome. He has these powers, he can do all this stuff. I just started rereading
0: Dune. I haven't read the actual book since, I don't know, 2001? Yeah, I haven't read it in probably about 20 years, but I've been rereading sections in the last few days since I started watching the movie.
1: Yeah, I, I started it again just a few days ago, so I'm not very far into it. So I don't remember exactly how much of this is in the first book and how much of it is from the second and third, but it is a major, major plot element that Paul takes on the mantle of this religious figure and the leader of this huge movement. He seizes power, and it is completely miserable for him. He hates it. He hates knowing that he has to because he gets these powers to see the future, and
0: he knows that it's terrible. That's the entire story of the sequel novel. Is Paul being miserable about the result of his seizure of the Imperium and trying his best to, like, Unsees the Imperium and failing utterly. That's the entire story of the sequel novel. Another thing that, like, jumps out at me, and this isn't as large a problem as, like, making the prophecy from a story planted by the Bene Gesserit into, like, a real Chosen One prophecy that comes true. This isn't as fundamentally a misunderstanding of the whole point of the fucking book. But it jumps out at me as such a stark thing that it's almost even worse. In the book, there's a line or two about the Phaedekine fighters, the core group that was trained by Paul and is closest to Paul and most dedicated to Paul and are the most skilled, most ferocious fighters. And it's said at one point in the novel that, like, they go into battle screaming the name Muad'Dib. And then they just, like, obliterate their enemies and whatever. Because they're in such a fervor of worshipping their leader, this religious figure who also trained them to fight. They're in such an idolatry fervor, such a religious fervor, they go into battle screaming his name as they take the fight to their enemies. And in the movie, they turn that into a technology that turns sounds into
2: gunshots. Yes. misunderstand a simple plot point so completely okay breathe calm down it's okay it's a movie <laughs> it's just
0: i'm sorry but everything about this movie is terrible <laughs> <laughs> i mean like i said earlier in the larger sense it fundamentally misunderstands the entire point of the story that frank herbert was trying to tell but that particular detail is just so fucking ridiculous. They took a description of religious fervor and idolization of the great leader, Fervor, and turned it into a gun that turns the sound of your voice into a blast.
1: And then it just so happens that the new name that Paul takes on happens to produce the most powerful blast.
0: I don't even understand how you could misunderstand that so badly. Like, where does that idea come from? I mean, in the final scene of Braveheart, the warriors run into battle screaming William Wallace's name. But, like, saying the name Wallace doesn't create an explosion in the English blinds.
1: Given everything else that
2: William Wallace did over the course of that movie, I wouldn't have been surprised. I mean, he does shoot fireballs from his arse. We've all been there.
1: The way you phrase that misunderstanding actually crystallizes something for me. This most recent time that I was watching the movie, it really, really struck me how much of it is just textbook hero's journey stuff.
0: Oh, yeah. Whereas the novel was trying to deconstruct that.
1: Yeah, well, that's something I didn't necessarily see in any great depth when I was 16. (laughs) But the fact that all of this ultimately goes so poorly for Paul and for basically everyone... And the fact that the ways in which he slots into that hero's journey narrative when he and his mother join the Fremen tribes, when they follow this story, the fact that that story was planted in the religion of the Fremen and in the religion of all these different people by the Bene Gesserit sisterhood, like you mentioned, is a meta comment on that entire hero's journey story structure. It's not just not following it, it's not just subverting it, but if you think about it in a certain way, it's making that standard Hero's Journey story a story that people know and use in the world of the story. And it's dramatizing some of the ways in which that is terrible and the ways that it is constructed and manipulated by people seeking to reify and expand their own power.
0: Well, there's a lot of points throughout the story. And like I said, this is like the entire story of the sequel novel Dune Messiah. But it's also part of the story of the original, where Paul tries to change the course of events and can't. Like, he wants to re-divert things. He doesn't want an army of religious zealots storming the universe in his name. But he can't change things. There's, like, just too much momentum behind the idea of an army of religious zealots storming the universe in his name that he can't change the course of events to prevent it. Because every single aspect of that course
1: of events has been meticulously constructed. He's part of a breeding program that has been going on for centuries, millennia, I don't remember. And he's an unintended product by the people in charge of that program, but he is part of it. He winds up fulfilling all of the stories that they have meticulously constructed and seeded in the cultures of the world
0: of the story, but they laid all of those elements there in the first place. So how does that story change when you remove the part about the whole thing being constructed? (laughs) That, I think, is very
1: insightful of you to point out. That gives me a whole new perspective on where it is
0: fundamentally that the movie is failing. I think the movie fundamentally fails in a lot of places, but that is absolutely one of them. I mean, we can talk about some others, but that, I think,
1: is probably the most interesting one. That the people making the film didn't perceive that much depth in the novel
0: either they didn't perceive it or that's just not the story they wanted to tell they wanted to tell the hero's journey
1: well they wanted to tell the hero's journey in a fantastical sci-fi setting because it's 1984 and everyone is still trying to make star wars
0: i imagine to an extent yeah That's why they took the Benny Gesserit weirding way, a skill of reading body language and tricking the mind of your enemy, and folded it into the story of this ray gun that fires with the sound of your voice. Right.
1: It's the tendency to make things a little too literal, or take things too literally. Which I think is also the same sort of error that is made when a lot of little details and terminology that comes out of nowhere and is not explained is sort of jammed into the film because it was in the book. And in terms of dramatic structure, when you don't have the context for what it is the characters are talking about, what they're doing doesn't make sense. And yet, at the same time, when they stop and talk about the context for five minutes, it's stultifying.
0: See, I was blaming a lot of the deficits of the movie on them just trying to cram as much stuff from the book in as they could and not taking the time to actually explain some of it. But given the catastrophically wrong way that they interpreted the stuff that they did stop to explain... Also... A lot of detail that is, like, a revelation from later parts of the story, and even stuff that's, like, a revelation from later novels in the series, just gets, like, exposited in an info dump in the first half hour.
1: Yes. I mentioned earlier that at the beginning of the film, the Emperor stands in the middle of the frame and tells us what's going to happen for the next hour and a half. Then, once those events have come to pass... When Paul and Jessica have been driven into the desert and desperately wind up joining the Fremen, Paul addresses a gathering of the Fremen and tells them exactly what his plan is so we know everything that's going to happen in the last 45 minutes of the movie. And even if you're adapting a novel, the subtleties of which you don't really see, as a piece of drama, like as a film... That is a mystifying decision. And while watching it this most recent time, I felt like all of the plot points from A to B to C to D are just kind of crammed into the movie such that there's no space left for any human drama. Yes. I mean, the protagonist in the middle of the film is moved to a new home in a place he doesn't know at all with people he doesn't know at all. And then the only foundation he has, his father, the whole social structure that he lives in, is pulled out from under him. He's driven into the desert where he will most certainly die. He knows his father is already dead. He is sitting on this rock in the open desert. His father is dead. He has nowhere to go and no one to turn to except his mother who is going through all of the exact same things. And the only acknowledgement of what the character is going through is when he turns his head to the sky and screams, Father! And that's it. We have to get to the next plot point. We can't dwell on the emotions of the characters because we have to get to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing.
0: See, I think a much better example of what you're talking about is the romance storyline between Paul and Chani, which I believe happens in, like, ten seconds! That's exactly where I was going
1: next, because he's seen her in a dream, in a flash-forward, and then they actually literally meet, and they're instantly in love. And nothing is explored. There isn't any
2: emotional journey that is lived in. Like, Chani has no character. No. She's barely in the movie, frankly.
0: Also, he gives her no consideration. Like, I'm thinking of the scene where he takes the water of life, which holy fucking hell, what the hell did they do with that scene? (laughs) In the book, he does it, like, in his chambers in the cave dwelling. He, like, takes it and goes into a coma until he wakes up a few weeks later. And in the movie, they, like, run out to the middle of the open sand and tie his hands and feet before feeding it to him? Why? (laughs) And then, like, his love is there saying, I love you so much. You're my whole life. And his response is like, give me the water. Hurry. Hurry. And then when he wakes up from his coma, and she's, like, so happy that he survived, and what he does is walk away from her and scream at the sky a message
2: for his dead father. Uh, Yeah. It's dramatically hollow. The characters
1: are hollow.
0: Can we talk about how, like, almost all of the acting in this movie is terrible? Like, I know David Lynch is a well-liked director, and I can't say I'm very familiar with his body of work, but almost all of the acting in this movie is terrible. Patrick Stewart is terrible! Yeah, P-Stew is kind of pretty bad in this. Patrick Stewart is orating, he's not acting. Yeah. And Kyle MacLachlan, in, like, his first scene, he seems almost giddy, like he's just holding back from giggling his way through it, and then the rest of the movie is just... I don't know, kind of wouldn't, I guess? I think probably the actors are doing what they can. I mean, there are scenes here and there where some of the actors do something decent, but...
1: Yeah, the writing and that lack of room for any human emotional journey that I was just talking about, that limits drastically the things that an actor can do.
0: That's true. Can we talk about the thing that this movie ruined for all future Dune adaptations? I talked before about how a lot of subsequent adaptations are referencing back to this adaptation rather than back to the novel. Can we talk about what the most grievous harm this movie did to all future Dune adaptations? I, okay, I know
1: we both thought the movie was bad, but I never realized you were so personally offended by
0: it.
2: Neither did I! (laughs) Ha ha ha! Like
0: I said, I haven't watched it since high school. But, like, the most grievous harm this movie did to all future Dune adaptations is, without a doubt, the depiction of the Baron.
1: Is this where we talk about the
0: politics of the thing? They took an evil, scheming, gluttonous enemy and turned him into the maniacally laughing
2: flying fat man.
1: Well, okay. On the topic of the Baron's depiction, I'll say this. The disgust with fatness and the pedophilic queer coding of the Baron is directly from the book. Those
0: are issues with the book, but it didn't have to be like this. Okay, I'll take issue with that in one respect. I don't think the pedophilic queer coding made it into the movie. That was just, and I don't know if you want to even call it coding, that was just, he was queer. I guess he lusted after younger men, but they were all adult men in the movie. In the book, he was a pedophile. In the movie, he was just evil because he was gay. Well, I mean, he wasn't just evil because he was gay, but he was just gay. In the movie, that part of his evil was just that he was gay. I don't think the pedophilia made it into the film. The
1: servant boy that he, like, made moon eyes over before licking his lips and flying over to him and fondling
2: before brutally murdering looked very young. I didn't think he was that young. I thought he was at least in his 20s. That is as may be,
1: but I think I get the implication. Because it's part of that conception. The idea that fatness equals gluttony equals evil, and the idea that queer, pedophilic lust equals sexual gluttony equals evil, are ideas that for many are not far apart. And the idea that queerness equals pedophilia is an idea that is not far outside of the mainstream, especially in 1984. And, by the way,
0: especially in 1965. That was another thing I was wondering about. Like, when exactly did the whole gay equals evil thing sort of go out of fashion? Because 1984 feels kind of late for it, to me. Really? Maybe that's just my memory of it, but, like, it feels like that's much more an artifact of the 50s and 60s. Like, even by the 70s, it feels like that kind of thing was going out of fashion real quick.
1: In some limited respects, in some limited areas, among some limited people, maybe. But 1984, how was AIDS doing in 1984? How was anyone in power doing with respect to issues affecting queer people and the existence and lives of queer people?
0: Well, I'm not talking about the Reagan administration's record on queer rights. I'm talking about Hollywood's use of queerness as a signal of evil. I felt like that was something that is more at home in the 50s and 60s than it is in the mid-80s. The queer coding of antagonists
1: is not something that's gone away. There are different valences to it, and it's not as common, I don't think. But, like, Eddie Redmayne in Jupiter Ascending is aggressively queer-coded. It's part of the camp aesthetic of the movie. I mean, for fuck's sake, it's a Wachowski movie. They're not, you know... It's not a homophobic film.
0: Well, yeah, there is an extent to which some of the signifiers that were once used to indicate a gay character and gay equals evil are now just seen as, like, indicative of an evil character. Like, there's a lot of that in Jeff Goldblum's performance in Thor Ragnarok. Yes. Yeah. But they aren't so explicit about this character is gay and therefore they're evil. That part of it has at least been stripped out of it. It's um.
1: It's not an explicit intent in the way that it has been in many cases.
0: Yeah. Like, when I see that in a movie from the, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, I just sort of, like, go, okay, that was sort of the thing then. But seeing it in a movie in 1984, I'm like, wow, really? Still? Well,
1: one of the things that I'm going to be paying rather close attention to as we talk about the miniseries and the new film is how those elements are handled.
0: I mean, there are certain aspects to the Baron's portrayal that you just really can't get past. Like, in the novel from the 1960s, his gluttony is part of his evil, and his pedophilic lust for underage boys is part of his evil. All of those things are wrapped up in each other and not easily
1: separable because the fundamental character trait of the Baron is that he's hedonistic. And when he has urges for anything, whether it be food or boys or murder, he will indulge those urges.
0: And that is why he's evil in the story, generally. So there is some work to do to take the character from that novel and to try to depict them with a more modern sensibility toward avoiding queerphobia and fatphobia and how much work you want to put into that will determine how your character of the Baron comes out. But they just really leaned into it hard in this movie. Like, they went the complete other way of trying to avoid queerphobia and fatphobia. They made it more queerphobic than the book.
1: (laughs) Well, like I said, I'm not that far into the book in my latest reading yet, but there are parts I'd be interested in getting to.
0: I mean, I know that, like, accusing all gay men of pedophilia is a whole thing, and that's part of homophobia. But in the book, it is pretty clear that, like, the evil thing he does is go after underage people, not just same-sex people. At least that's my memory of it. I haven't read it in a long time. Maybe I'm misremembering some details, but that was my impression. And, you know, depicting a gay man as necessarily a pedophile is homophobic, but on the other hand, pedophiles do exist and are evil. So there's some argument to be made there, like, exactly what they're doing and if the way they're doing it is bad or wrong, but to get rid of the pedophilia aspect and just, he goes after 25-year-old men and that's the sign that he's evil, I would argue is even more homophobic than the original novel. (sighs) And I get that they're trying to depict him as disgusting, but why does he shower in motor oil before he kills that guy?
2: Well. (laughs) Like, what's the character motivation for showering in motor oil? The character of the Baron, and
1: especially the performance of the character of the Baron, is an element of the movie that I think then and now and forever is absolute camp. The movie takes itself so deadly seriously in many respects, but that character and Ken McMillan's performance in that role cannot possibly ever have been anything other than camp.
2: That can't be accidental.
0: Yeah, but the thing is, the Baron isn't supposed to be camp. The Baron is supposed to be scheming and menacing. Plans
1: within plans is the phrase repeated in the book, right? Yeah. And it is true that in the performance that he's given in this film, I'm not sure he has plans within plans. In part because all of his plans have already been explained to the audience.
0: (laughs) I just looked it up, and the actor who's listed on IMDb as playing Harkonnen's victim was 25 in 1984. So, like I said, they completely stripped the pedophilia out of the Baron's portrayal.
1: Well... One thing that also stood out to me as far as that character is that this movie is full of thick 80s beards. All of the Fremen are bearded, so, so many people are bearded. Duke Leto, so, so many people are bearded. That, Harkonnen's victim, as you mentioned, was absolutely perfectly baby smooth.
0: Well, yeah, but so was Paul, and so was Fade, and so was Rabon and so was the Baron. Yeah, they weren't preyed
1: on by the Baron. Well, except, of course, when he drooled over Fade.
0: Yeah, he also drooled over Fade. How old was Sting in 1984?
1: Well, as a brief note on that, Sting obviously is total stunt casting, but like a lot of other people, he gets nothing to do. He does three whole things in the movie. He wears a steel thong for 30 seconds, He carries
0: a cat at one point, and he fights Paul at the end. Yeah, they don't even... So much context is stripped out of everything. They don't even go into why Fade is important or the point behind the fight with Paul at the end. Why is he even fighting Paul? Why is Paul fighting him? They don't go into any of that, but they have a fight in the book, so here's the fight.
1: Yeah, exactly. He's been presented as being with the Baron, and the Baron, by that point, is dead, so he's the one who fights Paul. On the topic of slavishly importing aspects of the novel without really understanding their
2: function, let's talk about the voiceovers.
0: Oh, for fuck's sake. The voiceovers were A, terrible, and B, largely unnecessary. Almost absolutely completely unnecessary, and an
1: active impediment to any effort to create drama in the story. Yes. In the book, a lot of the characters spend more time talking to themselves than talking to each other. But the function of that is to show the plans within plans. The complexity of this social system that has created the necessity to have those plans within plans, these deep internecine conflicts that have ridiculous amounts of layers and counter-planning and traps and traps within traps, and solutions within solutions within other traps to trap the people who are trapping you, and it's this endlessly complicated squabbling and endlessly complicated planning that all of the characters are doing. And because everyone is so secretive about these things, they're not talking to each other about it. So as readers, we're given this information in a way that underlines some of those motivations for the characters. In the film, there were ways that the characters could have discussed some of these things with each other, but instead there are these shots where they just stop moving and kind of stare into the distance like a long take before a commercial break in a soap opera while there's a voiceover reading some of the lines from the book. Which, again, even if you don't completely understand the subtleties of the book, and even if you don't completely understand the subtleties of the way that the world of the story works, if you're a screenwriter, or a director, or a producer, or
0: someone involved in the making of films, shouldn't you be better at dramatizing this stuff? So many of those short voiceovers could have easily been worked into dialogue. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not, like, occasional. And it's not just, like, one character to get their point of view across. Everybody fucking does it. Paul gets voiceover monologue. Leto gets voiceover monologue. Jessica gets voiceover monologue. Even the fucking Baron gets voiceover monologue.
2: Everybody does it! Yeah, everybody.
0: So... I know I'm kind of complaining about both sides of the same coin, but how do they stop the movie for giant exposition dumps and stop scenes so that characters can, like, voice over monologue in their own heads and cram so much stuff in without stopping to explain why any of it's important, and they still leave so much stuff
2: out? Like, they barely explain Alia at all. And when they do, they explain it wrong. <laughs>
0: They say she was born premature, but that's not what happens.
1: (laughs) Look, did you want to have another five-minute exposition sequence where the Princess Irulan tells us about genetic memory?
0: It would have been better than, like, getting it wrong. (laughs) Like, they don't even include Paul's son at all? Oh, God, no. Which I guess makes sense since they barely include Chani. They don't include his marriage to the Emperor's daughter to legitimize his claim to the throne. He just sort of says, I'm Emperor now, and everyone just goes, yeah, I guess. Well, oh, I mean, you killed
1: Fade, who is important for some reason. Yeah.
0: <laughs> have any of the adaptations included Count Fenring?
1: No, I don't think so.
2: I think he might have been in the miniseries, I don't remember. But I'm pretty sure he's not in the new movie, and he definitely wasn't in this one. So, is there anything else you'd like to yell about? Well, I
0: mean, do you want to talk about the fact that Paul, at the beginning of the book, is 15 years old, and they cast 25-year-old Kyle MacLachlan to play the role, who looks to be about 32? (laughs) I literally wrote in my notes,
1: Kyle MacLachlan is 25 but looks 30, Paul is 16, And then looked it up because I had to know for the new film, Timothy Chalamet is also 25, but looks about 13, I think.
0: (laughs) I mean, Shawnee is supposed to be younger than Paul, but Sean Young is also 25. Which, I mean, I guess it's fine to age them up, but it does remove a lot of the character
2: dynamics. I don't know if they are aging them up. What, you think Kyle McLaughlin is supposed to be 15? How old was everyone in Beverly Hills 90210?
1: I mean, this is movies. This is Hollywood, baby. You know, all of the characters are still treating Paul like a child. You know, his personal tutors and such.
0: I did appreciate that scene at the beginning where Thufir chastises Paul for sitting with his back to the door. And then later in the scene, they show the reverse angle and you see there's actually 11 guards in the room with Paul to protect him.
1: Yeah, but any of them could have been a Harkonnen spy.
0: Well, then it's a good thing he wasn't sitting with his back
2: to them, now isn't it? Also, good god the shield effects in this movie. Well, that's... I mean, it's dated.
0: Also, Duncan gets shot in the head while he has his shield activated, and the entire point of the shield is that it stops fast-moving things like projectiles, but won't stop slow-moving things like a carefully placed knife?
1: I thought that was supposed to be a super special sci-fi gun where the bullet slows down enough to penetrate the shield and then impacts the person.
0: If they have super special sci-fi guns like that, it defeats the entire point of the shield.
1: I don't know, maybe that's a super special thing the Sardaukar have. Or, you know, there are new machines on X. But, like, that's the sort of OMG a plot hole business that I don't really lock onto that much.
0: That's not OMG a plot hole, it's OMG you're invalidating the entire point of this thing existing in the story. I mean, a large part of the point of the shield existing in the story is the fact that if you fire a laser gun at a shield, it creates an atomic explosion, but they didn't include that aspect at all. So the only thing we know about the shields in the story, as demonstrated in the film, is that the shield will stop a fast-moving knife attack, but if you slip your blade in slowly, you can get in past the shield. That's the only thing we know about the shields. And yet he still gets killed by a fired projectile that goes through the shield. Like, what's the point of that? They could have just had him be stabbed. Why even include the shields if that's what you're going to do with it? Remember
1: that scene from the book where he fought with the shield
0: on? Yeah, other than it was in the book, so let's cram it in there. Yeah, overall, my impression of this movie after this rewatch is that it's just terrible. It's terrible as an adaptation of Dune, but it's also terrible as a movie. The story doesn't carry any dramatic heft. There's no character drama sustained ever. There's no momentum carried by the story because they keep stopping for exposition and voiceover monologues. A lot of it doesn't make sense because they're trying to cram as much stuff in there as they can without explaining the importance of any of it or how any of it relates to each other. So much stuff is presented as flat exposition rather than as revelations that the characters learn. The acting is mostly terrible. The effects look really, really fake, which is something that doesn't necessarily cripple a movie, but when everything else is bad around it, it just stands out as another thing that's bad. This movie is just all around terrible as a work of drama yes it's pretty
1: bad for many of those reasons i agree
2: as camp there are parts that can be salvaged
1: you know join a uh, dune meme group on facebook as we sort of wrap up is there anything that you think really did work in favor of the film
0: I'm just going through my notes looking for anything that I noted that I actually liked. I guess the casting of Raban and Fade, I think, are better than the casting of those characters in the
2: new movie. Really? Like, doesn't Batista play Raban in the new movie? Dave Batista is the beast Raban, yes. So,
0: yeah, the person who plays Raban in the 84 movie much more fits my imagination of the character from the novel than Dave Batista. And apparently, Fade Routha isn't even in the new movie, so... Really? Yeah. Which, by the way, the only place in the entire film that he's actually called Fade Routha is in the credits. The way that they
1: handle the Baron and everything about the Baron and the Harkonnens in the new movie, I don't know. I'm going to be paying very close attention to that. I mean, in the contrast between Raban as he's presented in the 84 movie versus Batista, the one in the 84 movie is just kind of a dumpy guy. Yeah. He's gross, and that's about it. He's not gross at the absurd level of the Baron. He's just kind of a
2: gross dude.
0: He's just a dumpy guy who, like, enjoys lording power over others and is a sadist.
2: Yeah. That's Rabban
0: from the book, as far as I remember. And you're right that that's definitely not Batista. Like, Raban isn't somebody who's, like, actually physically powerful. He's just somebody that lords his power as a close confidant of the Baron over people. But, like, Batista is actually a huge guy. Yes. But anyway, we'll talk about that when we review that movie. Yes, for sure. But yes, I think those two characters were cast well.
1: The main thing that I think is really a positive aspect of the film is something else that we're going to be talking about in a future episode, because I think the score is fantastic. And we had decided before that we'll talk about the scores in a separate episode later on. So I guess I can just leave it at that. I think the score is really quite good.
0: It has its moments. I'm curious to hear the whole thing, but I mean, there were parts that I noticed were good. Like you said, we'll talk about that in the score episode.
2: Yes. So, what have we learned? What have we learned about adapting Dune?
1: What are the lessons that people should take from this movie about adapting Dune? Other than,
2: no. Don't do the fucking voiceovers. It's (laughs) terrible. Well, spoilers, they learned that lesson. And like I said
0: earlier, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with this adaptation that isn't wrong with a lot of other adaptations.
2: That's probably true.
0: Because I remember thinking the same thing when we were talking about the Hunger Games movies. I remember thinking the same thing when we went to see the Time Traveler's Wife movie. That they were just like shoveling in small details from the book without explaining why they're important. I actually
1: read The Time Traveler's Wife after we saw the movie, so I didn't really get that perspective on it. It'll be interesting to see how that's handled in the new Time Traveler's Wife, whenever that is coming out.
0: They're doing a new Time Traveler's Wife?
1: Yeah, Stephen Moffat is doing The Time Traveler's Wife.
0: Wow, okay. I think it's, it might be for HBO or something? I mean, I'll be curious to see it. It's an HBO series, yeah. It's a series. Is it ongoing, or is it, like, a limited series? No, it's a,
2: um... No, it's not ongoing or limited? It's a six-episode limited series. Okay. Well, that
0: could be very interesting, because, assuming they're one-hour episodes, six hours is a nice runtime that gives you some time to include a lot of stuff. Yeah, so it'll be
1: interesting to see how that adaptation comes out.
0: Although, again, this isn't a review of the Time Traveler's Wife movie. No. So let's move on from that conversation. Sure. But yeah, like I said, a lot of the deficiencies... I mean, there are certainly filmmaking deficiencies and choices made in this 1984 Dune movie that I think were bad choices from a filmmaking perspective. But from an adaptation perspective, I think we covered the two most serious crimes. One, trying to include details from the book without explaining their importance. And two just really fundamentally misunderstanding what the fuck the book is trying to say. I mean, the Capital Couture ad campaign for the Hunger Games series wasn't any more against the themes of the book than making Paul a real, legitimate, messianic god figure. Hey,
1: he's making it rain. And if you want to make it rain, come to our Patreon. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at Non Toxic Fanboys on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us at nontoxicfanboys at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreoncom nontoxicfanboys. And you can find all of this info, plus every episode of the podcast, and all of our other accounts, like our YouTube channel, Twitch channel, and our Discord server, all listed at our website, nontoxicfanboys.com. The theme music to this podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada. Details are in the episode description. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Timing. The timing of
1: the fan falling over onto my chair I think was perfect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Christ. God, what a fucking mess.